stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. All right, so lots of reaction to the Supreme Court uh, decision today, and uh, we'll have time for your calls and your tax. I want to get some further insight uh, on all of this, though. In fact, when somebody who, as it turns out, was cited uh, in this ruling numerous times, uh, Dwight Newman is professor of law and Canada Research Chair in Indigenous Rights and Constitutional Law uh, at the University of Saskatchewan, amongst senior fellow in constitutional law at the Macdonald-Laurier Institute. Professor Newman, thank you so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Oh, I'm glad to be with you. So, I mean, was this more or less what, what you were expecting, or did anything surprise you today? Uh, well, I mean, the result was sort of what the uh, broad consensus was maybe after the hearing that uh, that it looked like the court was headed that way, although you never know until mm-hmm. you actually see the, uh, the result. Um, I think uh, the fact that there are three strong dissents um, says something. And uh, I mean, that's not what some people thought uh, at the very beginning of things. They thought it was a, uh, an easy, uh, easy win for the federal government um, right. uh, until they started seeing all the, the challenges with that. The reasoning's a little bit different than, uh, than I uh, might have thought, um, because uh, the majority judgment does actually um, frame itself in a way where it could have a, a lot of implications for other issues down the road. And I, I had thought if they went that way, they would still be crafting it a bit more narrowly than they did. Interesting. Well, what this is not about, clearly, is is the government's ability to, to tax. In fact, the Supreme Court seems to be suggesting this isn't really a tax. So we've got issues of competing environmental jurisdiction. We've got this overriding principle of peace, order, and good government. So essentially, what is the court saying here? Right. Well, so the federal government wasn't really defending it as a tax. Um, I mean, from a political perspective, they never really wanted to call it a tax. They wanted to call it carbon pricing and so on anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, But apart from that, in terms of fitting within the constitutional rules for a tax, there were always some troubles with that, given the way they had designed this this plan um, and the interaction with possible different provincial schemes. So they had set themselves up that they needed to defend it under the peace order and good government clause, and that's what they did. Uh, And that was challenging along the way, but they they did end up winning in the Supreme Court of Canada. Yeah, and so what is that principle, and, and and why does it apply here? Well, so the peace order and good government uh, clause has been very rarely used before um, and has had a quite a narrow test for what rises to what's called a matter of national concern. And it basically has been things that have to be dealt with by the federal government and can't be dealt with by the provinces uh, can end up moving there in a sense, even if they might have otherwise been provincial jurisdiction. Um, In this case, what they ended up saying in the majority judgment is that the setting of national standards on carbon pricing um, was something that fit within that category. Um, And uh, as a result, the federal government could pass this law that sets out to do that, essentially, uh, that prescribes minimum uh, uh, national standards for the pricing of carbon. Uh, I mean, the... The the very sweeping aspect to this is if you're saying that because you're talking about national standards and no province can set national standards, obviously, so you say the federal government can, 
uh, and constitutionally they're allowed to, um, you have a real question, well, what stops them from setting national standards on every issue that's within provincial right. jurisdiction? And where, what, what within the judgment holds that back? Now, there, there's a little bit of a balancing test in there, but, uh, but it sets a, a worrying precedent in terms of the expansion of federal power. Yeah, and, and it's interesting because, you know, the Alberta Court of Appeal seemed to, to recognize that, and they suggest this was some kind of a constitutional Trojan horse. The Supreme Court of Canada clearly doesn't see that way, but this is not narrowly confined to the issue of climate change either. So we've got a bit of a, a, a gap here, kind of a gray area going forward, don't we? Um, yeah, we've, we've got some challenges on how to understand how far this judgment reaches. Um, uh, in the majority judgment, to, to try to read it um, uh, charitably, in a sense, um, I guess uh, they do try to go through some exercise on why they think that this um, law is fairly narrow um, and why it doesn't reach as far as the Alberta Court of Appeal thought it did into sort of industry and so forth. Um, but at the end of the day, they are still reaching the conclusion uh, based on this premise that if the federal government's setting a national standard, uh, that that, uh, that could be something that fits within the scope of this peace order and good government power. And that's something that raises a lot of questions down the road for what else that could be used on. Right. Now, under this, this program or this, this plan of the governments, the provinces have some degree of flexibility. Uh, and, and I suppose none of that really changes as a result of this ruling, right? There's still kind of the, the national standard, but some flexibility for the provinces. Right. Yeah. I mean, this decision upholds the current federal scheme. Um, mm -hmm. So from the federal government standpoint, it's sort of uh, just keep going. And I guess the practical consequence is April 1st, there, there are going to be some new taxes coming in for everybody on the the plan. Um, yes. But that said, the provinces still have options under the federal legislation. And if they craft a provincial scheme that gets accepted by the federal government as sort of equivalent, then they can get out of the federal scheme. And with the comments of Premier Mo and Premier Kenny today, um, one has to wonder if they might be thinking about doing that and if, uh, if they're going to try to find creative ways uh, to develop policies that they think work better in uh, in provinces like Saskatchewan and Alberta. Right. And again, as you say, this simply upholds the, the current government's current approach to this issue. So it, it certainly doesn't preclude a future government from taking a, a different course on this. But is there anything here that could pose problems, say, for a conservative government that wants to dismantle the carbon tax? Um, nothing jumps out. I mean, uh, all the court is saying is that there's the uh, jurisdiction to pass this. Um, so there would be the jurisdiction of a future government to remove it if that were the route that they went. Um, one piece that does stand out, just as I think a bit more on this, um, is that the majority judges uh, do end up citing some uh, international climate change litigation that's going on. Um, and you have to wonder if uh, that part of the judgment is signaling a bit uh, that they're uh, that they're open to some of that kind of litigation and so on. Um, I don't know. We're going to see uh, some litigation work its way up around uh, Section 7 of the Charter and 
people trying to use that to argue that the federal government has to do more than it has. Um, and some little bits of the majority judgment might lend itself to those kinds of views, unless something like that actually developed through the courts, though it remains an option of the federal government to change this scheme uh, were a future government to, uh, uh, to be inclined to do something different. Very interesting. All right, we'll leave it there. Professor Newman, appreciate the insight, and uh, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Sure. Happy to talk with you. All right, take care. Uh, that's uh, Professor Dwight Newman, University of Saskatchewan. Uh, Canada Research Chair in Indigenous Rights and Constitutional and International Law. He's a Monk Senior Fellow in Constitutional Law at the McDonald Laurier Institute. And as mentioned, you will see his name cited a few times if you're so inclined to pour through that ruling. So the status quo is maintained, so nothing really changes. However, there is that question going forward. What are the implications uh, for other issues pertaining to provincial environmental jurisdiction? or perhaps some kind of legal challenge down the road where someone's trying to argue that uh, a government isn't doing enough on the issue of climate change. So maybe some, some questions about the ramifications of all of this, but essentially, as, as noted, what the government is doing is upheld. And, and that's, for the most part, the extent of this. Now, obviously, there were those who were hoping for uh, you know, the government to jump in and strike this down and what an embarrassment that would have been for, for the Trudeau liberals. Maybe that was unlikely, but look, you, you do have three dissenting justices here and you've had judges uh, along the way that have taken a different view on this. So the argument was never as clean cut as the liberals and their defenders would have had you believe. So as I mentioned, let's talk about black holes, which to, to me are, are quite fascinating and, and to a large extent have remained somewhat mysterious, right? I mean, I think we've known for a long time, it's been postulated, theorized that they exist. Uh, and now we've been able really to prove that. Look, if you were near a black hole before you got shredded, essentially, uh, you would see something. You know, the movie uh, Interstellar maybe is the closest uh, it's, it's been portrayed in, in Hollywood. But is it possible to see one? Is it possible to, as, as our next guest put it a couple of years ago, see the unseeable? And as it turns out, it is. A couple of years ago, we got the first photograph, essentially, of a black hole. And now we've got an even better look at it. And it is quite fascinating. Join us to talk more about it. Is a member of the Event Horizon Telescope team that is, has made this history. Uh, he is an associate professor in the Department of Physics and Astronomy at the University of Waterloo, an asso associate faculty member at the Perimeter Institute of Theoretical Physics. Avery Broderick joins us on the line here this afternoon. Professor Broderick, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Uh, my pleasure, Rob. It's great to be here. Well, and, and congrats on this, too, because, I mean, this, this really is groundbreaking historic stuff. I don't think I'm, I'm overstating it, to put it that way, you know, to, to give us a glimpse of what a, a black hole would actually look like. So walk us through what's been happening since we saw that first kind of blurry image a couple of years ago and what we've got now, which is a, a lot clearer and, and quite something. Sure. And, uh, you know, seeing is believing for us, too. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a marvelous thing that, that we are now at this place where, you know, the bedtime stories we would tell students about how black holes gobbled up matter and, and shone in the night. Um, are, are now finally being empirically demonstrated explicitly with these resolved images. So two years ago, uh, we presented really the very first most cursory results. It was those that, you know, the absolute 
thinnest top layer of the cream from this uh, historic data set that we collected in 2017. And over the past two years, we've been delving more deeply into it. Um, you know, producing the first, uh, first image in which a black hole appears as this dark silhouette on the surrounding emission, you know, that was hard. And, and once we got that on our, under our belt, we thought, um, w why not try to do something four times harder and produce the first polarized image? of a black hole. And that's what we've released today. Uh, and you can see this in you know, some of these uh, you know, beautiful photos that are uh, circulating around the internet and show these brush strokes. And these brush strokes mm. are the directions of polarization. So uh, explain what that is, right? Because we understand the concept of the, the gravitational pull, the immense gravitational pull of a black hole. But what this is also depicting then is essentially uh, a, a magnetic field that's being emanated, that's emanating from the black hole. So what, what is happening that's to right. produce that? Yeah, that's right. So, so uh, I mean, this is, this is what the uh, astro, astrophysical uh, value of polarization is, right? Uh, it's, I think many of us remember back in in high school and middle school, uh, playing with magnets, maybe yesterday for some of us. You know, not only are they the things that hold papers to our fridge, right, but uh, you know, they push and pull each other around in slightly mysterious, uh, action-at-a-distance kind of way. Um, and, and at some point, everybody has at least seen a picture of dropping iron filings on a bar magnet, and you see the, the forces that are the magnetic field that, that mediates the forces that are so fun to play with made manifest by the order in those filings, generating those, those interesting patterns. And polarization in the astronomical context is exactly what you said. It was, it's, uh, you know, iron filings for the astronomer. We don't get to go drop iron filings on objects that are 53 million light years away, but we do get to look at that polarization. And, and those magnetic fields... I mean, think of it kind of as the hairstyle of the black hole. This is, you know, the uh, the accoutrements on top of the on top of uh, the the space time, on top of what the you know, the black hole event horizon is, and and it helps explain one of the great paradoxes of astronomy that you know, black holes are characterized by this one-way path. Things go in and they don't come out, and in that sense, they're impossible to see. Uh, but but to the astronomer, a black hole is an engine. It is the the engines that power the brightest events in the universe. And the reason for that is rarely do we find black holes at the centers of galaxies that are all alone, that are all by themselves. They're always in an environment with other stuff that falls in, interacts with the black hole itself. And one of those things are these magnetic fields. And, and here we're actually looking at the structured, ordered magnetic fields, very much like the magnetic fields from your bar magnet is ordered, right? It has that very characteristic... Uh, in a pattern where it emanates from the North Pole and enters into the South Pole. And the, and the same thing's true of the, the uh, magnetic fields around black holes. Um, and that helps mediate this interaction that creates the engines of industry in the universe. It's like a, it's like beautiful destruction in a way, right? Because that's essentially <laughs> what a black hole is. But the, the process is, is quite something. That, that's exactly right. It's a, uh, now, a great organizing destructive force, you know, so uh, you know, God help you if you stray too close. Um, although, you know, some of these supermassive black holes, you might not realize it until people stop responding to your tweets. You know, then, <laughs> then uh, I, I don't know if Twitter responds to you if you complain about that. But, uh, 
you know, you, as you cross the event horizon, nobody can, can hear you anymore. But, uh, you know, in, in this case, yeah, beautiful destruction is, is absolutely right. Um, but, but also, it's not, it's not merely an um, aesthetic thing. You know, so mm-hmm. this, uh, w- you know, because of the brightest objects in the universe, these, uh, these uh, magnetic fields are able to launch these outflows, these light speed uh, streams of magnetic field and plasma out into the cosmos around the black hole. And they extend the influence of these things uh, over not just its, its vicinity, not just near the horizon, not just its own galaxy, but to intergalactic scales. And so it's through this process that we're looking at at the very, you know, the very bottom, the very beginning of this launching of this light speed outflow of a stream of magnetic fields and plasma, um, black holes are able to rule the fates of their host galaxies and, in fact, all the galaxies around them, make the night sky look the way it does. And so that, you know, this beautiful destruction, as you said, is, you know, a critical element to understanding why, why does the universe appear the way it does. There's the other factor with with a black hole, and I mean, the question of being able to observe one here, we're talking about a black hole that's, you know, in a distant galaxy, so we're we're not obviously seeing it up close, but if one were to, because there's another element in all of it that's hard to observe, and that's, you know, the warping of time, and in terms of what we might be seeing as we're watching a black hole, I mean, that, that immense gravity is also warping time. So how does how does that manifest itself, or how does that affect what would be, you know, the the image of a black hole? So that's that's closely related to the the warping of the space, and and so we, if we if we saw a dynamical event, so we saw an ejection, or we saw something fall in, and we're looking, uh, the black hole at the center of our galaxy. So we have our own monster. It's not quite close to home, but it's a lot closer than M87. Mm. Um, if we saw a dynamical feature, we might be able to see this uh, warping of time that you described, this gravitational redshift. And that, you know, there, there are certainly light travel time effects, right? So we, we are seeing light that's coming directly towards us. But then since the warping of the space-time is so extreme, because the, the bending of light is so extreme, we do see some photons that go around the back of the black hole. And so there's an extra time delay. Those photons had to go a little bit longer to get to us. And that, that helps shape the, the general geometry of the image. Um, but this, uh, this question of what happens uh, when we see a dynamical event is very uh, high in our minds. And then we are constantly looking for you know, movies or dynamical features. Well, maybe that that uh, partly answers the next question. I mean, wh- what's the next step here? Where do you go from here? So, uh, I said uh, that two years ago we had the thinnest layer of cream. Uh, now mm-hmm. we've descended into the middle of the cream. We still have a great deal that we can learn from this uh, amazing data set. We also have another source. We also have that black hole at the center of our galaxy, and that has unique uh, challenges to it. It's a much lower mass black hole, which means that it changes on much shorter timescales. M87 is a, it's a, it's a giant, it's a monster, and, and it changes on timescales of a week. The one at the center of our galaxy changes on timescales of minutes. And uh, that really opens up the possibility for these dynamical probes, but it also 
is an incredible complication. It's, mm-hmm. it's sort of like, you know, taking a single long exposure image of the hockey game, and then you're trying to figure out what happened. And you can imagine that that's, uh, that's kind of how we used to watch hockey, right? You know, when we all had standard definition TVs. But, uh, you know, it's incredibly difficult to figure out what's going on there. And, and uh, you know, so immense opportunity and immense challenge. Uh, but uh, if there's one thing that we like at the Event Horizon Telescope, it's overcoming challenge. Well, eventhorizontelescope.org is the website, and uh, folks want to see uh, this image. It's uh, available there and uh, much more as well at perimeterinstitute.ca. Professor Broderick, thanks again for making some time for us here today. really appreciate this. My pleasure, Rob. All the best. Take care. That is uh, Black Hole Hunter, Avery Broderick, Associate Professor, University of Waterloo, also with the Perimeter Institute uh, for Theoretical Physics and uh, part of the Event Horizon Telescope team. So it's almost like if you could picture like a, a dark bathroom and water swirling down a drain, but the water is fire. <laughs> it's that's it, kind of how you would almost describe this this image, which is quite something. Anyway, eventhorizontelescope.org. And welcome back. Rob Brickenridge with you here on this Wednesday afternoon, 403-974-8255. Uh, the other day, the, the liberals pushed out a, a little fundraising email urging their supporters to uh, buy a T-shirt uh, that says on it, climate change is real. It's a little ironic, I suppose, to be manufacturing T-shirts to make that point, since, you know, the manufacture of, of clothing certainly has its own carbon footprint. But it was meant to, to rub some salt into the wounds of conservative leader Aaron O'Toole who has talked about the importance of conservatives acknowledging climate change and, uh, you know, detailing a plan to tackle climate change. But clearly not everybody in the party is on board. We saw over the weekend at the conservative uh, convention, uh, delegates vote against a motion to add that phrase that's on the liberal T-shirt to the policy book. So there's clearly, I think, you know, some, some differences of opinion on this between the leader and maybe some of the grassroots. I think Aaron O'Toole recognizes that maybe the party's electoral success depends on being serious about this issue. You know, coming out of a pandemic, it might not be the biggest issue in the next election. But I think it's certainly going to be an albatross for the new leader if his party is perceived as being stuck in the past on this. Now, for his part, the leader has insisted that he is going to uh, unveil some meaningful climate policy. And we'll all see it very soon. The new president of the party today insisting that, yes, look, the leader has some authority on this. He's going to move forward on this. And it's his call to make. So joining us to talk a bit more about uh, some of the issues this poses for the conservatives and why climate change is, is such a divisive issue uh, amongst conservatives. Very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon. Tasha Carradine is a writer, commentator, speaker, public affairs consultant, columnist with the National Post. You can read her latest at the National Post uh, website, nationalpost.com. She's also with the Max Bell School of Public Policy at McGill. Tasha, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much, Rob. So your sense then of, of why this, this convention, which was meant to be a, a real platform for Aaron O'Toole and kind of a, you know, a launching pad of sorts for what's likely to be a federal election campaign this year, turned out to be more of a, a gift to the liberals than anything else? 
Well, it certainly did. I mean, you, you cited the T-shirt example, and that followed on the heels of a comment, several actually that were made in the House of Commons about uh, one from Seamus O'Regan, the Minister of Natural Resources, who sort of said in response to a question, you know, I want to have a meaningful conversation with someone who believes in the reality of what's going on on the planet. And, you know, you can roll your eyes at that and go, oh, it's just politics. But I think it goes deeper because this was the albatross that sunk Andrew Scheer last time around. Um, the notion that the conservatives don't accept that climate change is real, that it is happening. And that's something that this convention could have dispelled. Um, granted, the resolution in question was not a resolution that only dealt with that one phrase. But the fact it was rejected produced these headlines which say, you know, climate change is not real or Tories refuse to accept climate change is real. And just to the average voter in the 905, close to where I am here in Ontario, that's a turnoff. It doesn't matter. They don't have to dive deep into what was exactly said. All they'll say is this party's out of touch and I can't trust them on this issue. So how can I trust them on others? It's interesting, too, because, you know, this this is definitely more of an issue, I think, for federal conservatives. Because, you know, with the exception of B.C., we've got, for the most part, conservative or conservative-ish governments in, in most of the big provinces. And, and, of course, including Ontario, where a lot of these battleground areas are likely to be in the next federal election. Do you get a sense maybe that, that have provincial conservatives figured this out better? Is, is this less of an issue for provincial conservatives? Where, where do you see a difference? Well, I think that the issue um, plays out in different ways in different parts of the country. You've got, I mean, parties in in certain parts where everyone's kind of in agreement on this. I'm thinking of BC and, and Quebec, for example, where there's no where there's a conservative party, but really it's you know it's not it's not a big player in, in the vote. It's more of a liberal party. There mm-hmm. is a cent is a sort of I'd say rightist party, it's a center party. Then you have the Coalition Avenue of Quebec, which is more right wing. And so, you, but everyone there agrees. Um, you know, climate change is real. We'll do things about it. Um, the other problem is, I think, um, you've got kind of a mixed bag in terms of how people feel, how strongly they feel, and what action they feel should be taken. That's really the crux of it, is that people will accept, mostly, that, yes, there's a problem, but what do you do about it? So I think the provinces, because they're closer to the ground on this, can sort of get a better sense of where their electorate is at and what, how far they will accept, what sort of, you know, will they accept carbon tax? Will they not? I mean... And I think that on a, on a national level, you have a party, the Conservatives, that's dominated really by most people from the West. I mean, the largest membership base generally is in the West. And there you see the least acceptance of the issue of climate change. So for the Conservatives federally, they have to hew to that common denominator, which won't fly in Quebec. It won't fly in other parts of the country. So it's, it's hamstrung in that way because it can't be responsive to the people that are closest to it because it's flying at 30,000 feet. So... That's a problem. It's always been a problem to reconcile different interests within the conservative or progressive conservatives that used to be called a party. And the regional disparities, especially on issues like this, is one of those problems. And it is a real dilemma for Aaron O'Toole because we we see that certainly the, the grassroots of the party you know, are not enthusiastic about this issue, let's put it that way. And they're certainly not enthusiastic about the kinds of policies that would be necessary to to meaningfully tackle it. I, ironically enough, the idea of a carbon tax offset by rebates is, is maybe a more conservative approach to this issue, although, you know, the liberals have kind of co-opted that. So where does that leave Aaron O'Toole and where he's got room to, to come up with something meaningful that will distinguish his position from the liberals, but also appeal to conservatives? 
Well, I think he's in a tough spot because he's facing a situation where 54% rejected this particular resolution. So clearly there is there is a, a large part of the conservative base that does not agree with um, not only the, the what to do about it, but the problem itself. So I think that if he goes away of saying, you know, we're going to have a carbon tax, as he said, with rebates, um, that was kind of tried in Ontario here uh, where people are, I think, more accepting of climate change. But again, also, it becomes, what do you do about it? And carbon tax here was, you know, um, proposed by the former uh, progressive conservative leader. He fell on his sword in part on that issue. People were not happy about it. So I think that I'm not sure about a carbon tax. I think there's a lot of um, of places you can go with to address climate change that the West would accept Um, things like carbon capture. New technology. I mean, Sheer alluded to that last time, but it really wasn't fleshed out. There was no sense of what net zero really means. I mean, net zero is, does not mean that you never emit anything. It means that your emissions are at net zero. So, in other words, you have offsets. You have ways of tackling the emissions so that you're you're at a position where you're not you're not not polluting, but you're not creating more greenhouse gases in the environment. So you can. There are ways of using. Uh, petrochemicals, there are ways of using carbon-based fuels that if you offset them correctly, if you store, if you capture, if you do these things, you can actually get to a net zero situation. But it doesn't mean you're not getting the stuff out of the ground because that's the problem is that, yeah. you know, the Western, you know, Western-based economy, you've got, and Canada's economy too, is based on resource extraction. The question becomes if, if tools to come up with something to say, this is how we're going to extract resources or work with companies to extract resources, but we're going to get to net zero because of, of new advancements and other things and incentives the government might put in, um, and, and regulation too. I, I don't discount regulation as well. But that's, I think, a more realistic approach than to say, hey, we're just going to throw a carbon tax at it, because a lot of the conservatives will not buy that. Yeah, and that's a big factor. I, I, I agree that there's you know some part of the conservative base that just you know this is not an issue. They they don't think this is a real problem. They think caring about it is is liberal in and of itself. They don't want anything to do with this. But I think there are a lot of conservatives who who say, yeah, okay. I mean, you know, this this is something real. This is something we need to be concerned about. But you know, the idea that we should just accept economic pain and 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 that's going to be our policy approach and and not see any payoff. And, and not see any progress in other countries. That I think that's where you, you see a lot of conservatives bristle, especially as you mentioned out west and the potential impact on the energy industry. So that's where maybe Aaron O'Toole has to come up with with more of a balance and saying that there is that there is a trade off, there is some payoff that this doesn't have to just be economic pain. And is maybe that where he's likely to go? Um, yes, I, I hope he's likely to go because right now the problem is that whatever he says on this issue will be met with skepticism because of the decision at the policy convention. I mean, it's very easy now for the liberals to simply throw at him and say, we don't believe you. Your party's not on side. How will you make this happen? You know, as a leader, the convention made him look weak. That was, to me, the biggest problem was, was that, that coming out of this was that you know, the conservatives, A, don't look united on this issue, and B, their leader just looked like he could take them where he wanted them to go, where he wants them to go. So he's going to have to do a lot of work, I think, with the grassroots to make sure that whatever message he puts out there, it's not just his voice. He'll have other voices within the party who will echo what he's saying um, and can also uh, you know, count, push back against the attacks that will come which will say that you know, your party's not with you on this. Good luck. We don't believe you. I do wonder, I mean, tomorrow we're going to get a decision from the Supreme Court of Canada regarding the constitutionality of the liberal climate change policy, specifically mm-hmm. the carbon tax. Now, 
maybe it's unlikely that that's going to be struck down in its entirety, but it, it's certainly within the realm of possibility. That would add a real wrinkle to all of this, right? If all of a sudden the liberals have to start from scratch and, you know, that, that their policies deemed to be a, a failure of sorts, how much of an impact do you think that could have to more? It depends on what the court bases its decision on, because, um, you know, uh, constitutionality and uh, division of powers, the environment is one of those areas where it's not clear who who yeah. has jurisdiction. It wasn't contemplated. So you have both, basically, the federal and the provincial government having some jurisdiction in the area. So how will the court decide that and will they decide the government overstep? Um, that's really the issue. It, 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 can come down to sort of more technical sort of legal interpretation of this. And the government can tweak its plan to respect the court's decision if, if that's what happens. The court may, I hate to say, you know, the court may look to give the government an out in the sense that they will find it unconstitutional, but they'll frame it in such a way the government can remedy the situation. If they find it unconstitutional with no way for the government to remedy it, that will be a big blow to Trudeau. Um, but it doesn't mean, like you said, that, that there won't be any action on this because provinces are taking individual action, too. Right. So yeah. you see some of the carbon taxes. Um, it, 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 I don't think this is the end of the, of the conversation for conservatives, um, but certainly it would be harder for the liberals if their policy gets struck down. We'll see what happens tomorrow and going forward. Uh, much more is mentioned. Your latest up at uh, nationalpost.com. Tasha, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Appreciate it. Thank, thank you, Rob. It's been a pleasure. All right. Likewise. Take care. Uh, that is uh, columnist commentator uh, Tasha Carradine uh, writing in the National Post on how this conservative convention turned into uh, a political gift for the liberals. Uh, look, I don't know if it's necessarily lasting damage if, you know, Aaron O'Toole can be smart about this. But clearly there's some division in the party over whether to care about this or how to care about this. What kind of a policy can conservatives sell to Canadians? Where has the damage been done? So we've had many conversations recently about policing in Alberta. A part of that has involved the question of whether we should have a provincial police force instead of a RCMP policing some communities. Uh, but more recently, the conversation has uh, shifted. or it's, it's been a little bit different because right now we're talking about not the RCMP, but a municipal police force, specifically the Lethbridge Police Service. We've now got a second ACERT investigation into alleged unlawful surveillance of Lethbridge MLA, former cabinet minister Shannon Phillips, uh, allegedly surveilled by Lethbridge Police Service members for political reasons. Very concerning indeed. So concerning, in fact, that Alberta's justice minister has demanded uh, that the Lethbridge Police Service clean up their act. He's given them until April 16th to submit an action plan. Uh, to restore public and government confidence. Uh, I want to go here to clip number 12, more from Global's Tom Rolston in Lethbridge. The embattled Lethbridge Police Service is facing more provincial pressure to address waning confidence from the public and government. In a recent letter to Chief Shaheen Medizadeh, Alberta's Justice Minister is demanding an action plan within weeks to address concerns about its workplace culture. Similar letters were sent to the chair of the Lethbridge Police Commission and Mayor Chris Spearman. Casey Madu says he wants a plan in writing to his office for review by April 16th. We don't need to take months and years to deal with those issues when we have folks who uh, know what the issues are. 
Issues to plague the service in recent months include an outside investigation into allegations of unauthorized database searches of Lethbridge West MLA Shannon Phillips. It's one of nine open investigations into the service being conducted by Alberta's Serious Incident Response Team, along with other internal investigations. Madhu says there will be consequences if a remedy plan is not submitted or if it fails to produce results. If I need to intervene to set aside the entire uh, police service, I would. Lethbridge police say they've been working on an action plan over the past several months. It says a common underlying theme will be to ensure consistent accountability and a consistently high standard of integrity in their service delivery. Our city's mayor is standing by the police service and its plan. In a statement, Chris Spearman says in part, Lethbridge residents should continue to feel confident in the police service that is here to protect them. We know there are many, many hardworking and dedicated LPS staff who go to work every day committed to the safety and well-being of our community. Lethbridge Police says it expects to provide its plan to the Justice Minister ahead of deadline. Tom Rolston, Global News. Okay, so you heard the Minister saying that in that clip that all options are on the table. And, and that would include disbanding and replacing the Lethbridge Police Service. So joining us to talk a bit more about this uh, unusual situation, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, uh, Dr. Kelly Sunberg is an associate professor of the Department of Economics, Justice, and Policy Studies at Mount Royal University, also an adjunct professor in the School of Law at University of Adelaide and a fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Dr. Sundberg, thanks for joining us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Well, thanks for having me. It's uh, quite, quite an issue that's, uh, uh, that's developing. Well, it is indeed. And, and I think this goes beyond the Shannon Phillips situation. But I mean, that, that stands out, right? The, everything that's come to light about that situation, it just seems such an egregious uh, abuse of power that, I mean, clearly something needs to be done here. But what does this all represent to you, first of all? Well, I mean, you're right. There's more than one incident, and it's, it's, it's not isolated. There's, there's been some challenges within the, the Lethbridge Police Service for a while. You know, the one thing that I find most concerning is the allegations of uh, some of the senior members and other members with regards to uh, putting out memes and, and a, a culture whereby they were uh, discrediting the leadership, the former leadership of the police service. But neither here nor there. There's been lots of issues from arresting stormtroopers to, uh, to the young, young woman who's dressed up like a stormtrooper to the way that they euthanized a deer to following around a minister. I mean, there's some issues at play. You know, my thoughts around this are uh, there's twofold. One, I, I, I'm, I have a, I run a research team that will be soon uh, launching a study for the province of British Columbia, looking at creating um, a college of policing and uh, the feasibility of establishing a college of policing in British Columbia. The the Ministry of uh, Public Safety and Solicitor General there is curious about how. Um, just like lawyers or uh, doctors have, lawyers have their professional college, the, the law society, doctors have theirs, the College of Physicians and Surgeons, engineers, architects, all these have the same type of college that, that regulates license, uh, licenses, regulates uh, members of um, those professions. And my, my team believes that uh, if, if police had a similar professional body, issues that we're seeing in Lethbridge would have developed. In saying that, we have 18 months, and there's a team that includes almost a dozen of us who um, are are working on this project. We've been we have 18 months to 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 look at the feasibility of uh, of of a similar sort of approach to police reform. 
how anyone could possibly do uh, uh, action plan in three weeks, three months, one year for a police service. Man, that, I, my, my hat goes off to them because that is incredibly ambitious. Um, but I would be pretty cautious about the outcomes of such a rapidly um, and hastily put together plan. Although, of course, I, I wish whoever's doing it the best of, of luck and, and hope it works out. But uh, that's a tight timeline. Yeah, it is. Well, again, that's the thing, right? And, you know, the justice yeah. minister is, is right to be concerned, and he, he's got the, the jurisdiction to intervene if he feels is necessary. Um, but, yeah, it, it is a tight timetable. And, you know, the, the, putting the option on the table of actually, you know, disbanding the force, that, that really ups the ante here, doesn't it? It sure does. And I'll tell you, uh, Minister Madhu is, he is one capable he is he, he, the work he's been doing in the short time he's been minister. Uh, I, I find very impressive. I think what he's working on toward a new police act and his efforts. But this is an individual. This is a minister who I have no doubt. Uh, I, I would not. I I don't think he meant his letters to become public. Um, but I have no doubt if Minister Madhu feels that he has to disband the Lethbridge Police Service, I have no doubt that he would. And he would do it quite quickly. Now, Section 30 of the Police Act, and here's the challenge. There's, and you mentioned it at the beginning of the show. There's a few things at play. One, we've been talking about a provincial police. And I, I'm a strong supporter of it. I think it's a great idea. Um, I think it would be expensive, but I do think that there's uh, it, the time has come to either figure out a new relationship with the RCMP. And i I got to tell you, I think the Mounties do a fine job in many respects. I mean, for federal police, and we're really lucky to have the RCMP. Um, I think that the the vast majority of women and men with, with all our municipal services, including Lethbridge Police, do a great job. I think that these are dedicated people who, who protect us and, and are working in the interest of the public. But at the end of the day, I think that there there is a need for us to review and think about how policing is delivered in our country um i think that uh a key part is is increasing is is moving the 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 occupation of policing to a profession of policing to evolve this to evolve the practice of policing just as we have with other um groups uh engineers lawyers doctors etc but when we think of the minister's choices here under section 30 he either has to have the rcmp come in and take it over, which would conflict with the point of, hey, we need to have a provincial police because we don't, we're not particularly happy with the Mounties. How do, you, how do you reconcile those two issues? Or he has to bring in another police service to, uh, to police it, or he has to create a whole new police department with an interim police department, uh, like an interim police chief and, and executive, uh, and figuring out how are you going to basically convert the Lethbridge police into... Now, there's opportunities like maybe the Lethbridge Regional Police or some new things, but I think a lot of this comes down to... Uh, there's a lot of challenges here. Section 30 of the Act has some pretty serious and uh, significant options. There's not a lot of... They're limited options, and they're big options, but something has to be done, and... Wow. I mean, to get it done in three weeks, three months, one year, I don't know. I don't know. I just, I yeah. I hope the best. I think this is a new chief. There's a, the police, the police commission in Lethbridge has new leadership too. I mean, these are volunteers. Mm-hmm. 
uh, not the chief of police, but the, the, the commission members or volunteers. There's so many moving parts here, and we're in the, currently in the throes of a new police act, uh, or developing a new police act for our province. So, I mean, there's some great lessons to be learned here that I'm sure will, be, will inform the new police act. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's uh, yikes. We're seeing some, some challenges here. No kidding. You know, the other interesting angle in all of this, of course, is, you know, some of the, the outstanding uh, cases that, you know, Lethbridge police have made arrests, they've laid charges, matters are before the courts. If all of a yeah. sudden the Lethbridge police doesn't exist and it doesn't exist because, you know, they've been discredited, what what comes of those prosecutions potentially? Yeah, I, well, it's a great question. You know, I, I had a... a call with a few friends of mine who are criminal defense lawyers and one who's a crown prosecutor on this very issue. Uh, I'm not a lawyer, um, although I, I, I work in that area with it, within the study of the law. It's uh, There's a lot of challenges at play. I mean, obviously, we have a system that will, we have a great uh, criminal justice system. We'll work mm-hmm. through it. Now, I should say, if there were a new police, like if the minister decided to activate Section 30 and disbanded the Lethbridge police, this isn't to say that the member that the the women and men who are doing a fantastic job, the vast majority of them who work for the current Lethbridge Police, wouldn't still be there or wouldn't have jobs. I mean, right. clearly uh, the, the the challenge is there's already a crisis in recruiting and policing in this province. There's just not enough applicants or quality applicants for any of the policing services. It's a challenge. So to uh, there's roughly 200 officers in Lethbridge to say you're all, you know, here's your, your pink slips and uh, everyone out the door, and, and now we're going to bring in 200 new people. I don't think that would be right. That's not going to work out, and that's that would be crazy. But I could see the, the leadership and then uh, an assessment to who's there. Now, I uh, speculating here if if the if the agent if the police service were disbanded, so would the police. Uh, the 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 whole thing would change. So you'd have a new police union or a police association under the collective bar the police collective bargaining act. You'd have so you'd have a new police association. You'd have new leadership. There you there could be there you, they could make hay where the sun when the sun's shining in the sense that talking about rethinking policing in the province. Maybe there is an option for a regional policing service. Maybe there is an option for uh, rethinking how policing is done. Something has to happen. I mean, at the end of the day, something has to happen. Whatever happens cannot be piecemeal. It needs to be evidence-based. It has to be well thought through. It has to have the public interest first and foremost. It has to show the integrity. And now it's public at a provincial level. It has to show the integrity of the police act, the the policing system for our province. Although it's Lethbridge, this ha- this is an example for all to follow. There's a lot of moving parts here. And uh, to just shamelessly put a plug in for our research, I think if there was a college of policing for Alberta, we wouldn't be having this conversation. If, poli- if there was a professional body that ob- oversaw this, if police were licensed, just like a lawyer, a doctor, an engineer, an architect, um, other professionals, if we had this system in place like we do for a vast majority of other professionals, uh, for other professions, um, I don't think we'd be having this discussion because the oversight body would have dealt with it. Yeah, well, something maybe the province should be looking at. We'll leave it there. Professor Sundberg, appreciate your input on all of this, and uh, thanks for making some time for us here this afternoon. Thanks for having me. I'm sure we'll talk again soon.
Oh, yes, absolutely. Take care. That's uh, Kelly Sundberg, uh, associate professor at Mount Royal University uh, in the uh, Department of Economics, Justice and Policy Studies. And as he said, doing a lot of work in, in this area when it comes to, you know, kind of a regulatory body, like what BC is looking at, similar to what exists for doctors or teachers or engineers. So maybe that's something to look at. So, yeah, there, there's two questions here, right? How much of this is, is a Lethbridge police service problem and how much of this is a just policing in general issue? So it's possible that changes to the Police Act, improved standards, whatever comes from this ACERT investigation could go a long way in addressing a lot of this. So April's going to be a big month. April 19th is going to be a big day. It will be the first federal budget in over two years. And as far as federal budgets go, this one is going to be rather consequential, I suspect. Now, look, there are political implications, you know, in a minority government situation and a possible or even likely election this year in terms of how the government wants to shape this budget, how the opposition parties are going to react. But obviously, after a year of dealing with this pandemic, and the impact it's had on the Canadian economy, there's got to be a focus on recovery. And so what does that look like? What kind of an emphasis does this budget need to have? What are the priorities uh, that the government needs to have in crafting this budget? So we'll find out for sure on April 19th, but I think certainly the government needs to hear from Canadians in terms of what we're looking for. The Canadian Chamber of Commerce calling on the federal government to focus on a business-led recovery, to support businesses, support the economy, and support Canadians coming out of this and moving forward. So joining us to talk a bit more about what that entails and what the government response needs to look like, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, uh, Ala Dragola, who is Director of Parliamentary Affairs and Small Business Policy with the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. And uh, you can read more of their budget proposals uh, at the website, which is Can or just uh, chamber.ca. Ala, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Rob. Great to be here. Yeah, so like I say, I mean, you know, the stakes are pretty high around this budget, not just the fact that there hasn't been one in a couple of years, but just mm -hmm. where Canada's at. So in just in, in general terms from the Chamber's position, what, what does the focus need to be? I mean, look, for for businesses, I mean, the top of mind issue is is we need a plan to, to help the business community lead Canada's economic recovery. Um, obviously, there's been, um, you know, an unprecedented amount of, of spending over the last year and much of that subsidy and that stimulus spending uh, will likely continue um, into the spring, summer and perhaps even through the end of the year. Um, and, and we do need to ensure that we do see that continued support for the struggling small businesses and, and businesses in the hardest hit sectors. Uh, we do want to see the wage subsidy and the rent subsidy program continue uh, until businesses are, are really able to recover. But what is also needed and is critical is a plan to help businesses create economic growth. Uh, we know we can't cut our way back to fiscal health and, you know, we can't inflate our way out of debt as, as that would have dire consequences for consumers and, and all Canadians. So we do need a plan that includes, um, you know, the ability for the private sector to lead the way for growth. Uh, and that requires the government to do its part and create that encouraging business environment uh, for, for the private sector to, to do what it does best. 
Uh, you know, certainly there's some forecasts that are optimistic about economic growth, and, and perhaps there is some degree mm -hmm. of pent-up demand or maybe you know, mm -hmm. post-pandemic euphoria that's going to drive a lot of mm -hmm. spending, a lot of economic activity. But you know, how much can the government count on that, and, and how much does government need to be involved in really encouraging that, that kind of recovery? Yeah, and I think you touch on a really important important part here in terms of, you know, economic rebound versus economic recovery and growth, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, having that pent-up demand and, and that, you know, rebound back to quote-unquote normal times, that's the, what the stimulus spending is for. In order to have recovery and true recovery, it's when those businesses on Main Street are open and thriving once again. And it, one of the things that we're highlighting in our, in our um, you know, pre-budget advocacy and conversations with government is, you know, getting back to normal is just the first step. But there's been a number of structural issues in our economy for, for a number of years um, that have really just been accelerated and um, accentuated by the pandemic. And those are the areas that we really want um, to ensure that there's a plan um, to help for growth, innovation, and, um, and you know, job creation or what have you. Um, and, and those are a variety of areas. You know, it's everything from job creation and ensuring the labor market is, is adequately equipped. Um, it's about helping women um, get back into the workforce and stay in the workforce. Um, you know, it's about business investment in Canada. I mean, it's, it's no secret. We have, um, you know, some of the lowest um, business investment rates in the OECD. Uh, it's about digitization. It's about, you know, how can we um, help reduce the impacts of climate change? It's all of these things that that are are in play that we do need to see a plan um, so that businesses know what's coming and how they can get ready to help lead the way. So what does that look like policy-wise? Um, you know, do we need to look at uh, tax structure? Do we need to look at specific programs that, that might address some of these areas? How would you mm -hmm. like to see this manifest? Well, I mean, it, it, it's multifold, but in, when it comes to tax and, and regulations, I mean, the number one um, need is to ensure that we have a strong business investment climate in Canada. I mean, it, it, we need certainty on regulations. Um, it, it seems that often we can't get some of these big projects done in Canada because of regulations. Um, I know sometimes foreign investors can be wary to come to Canada and invest because they've seen some, some um, you know, projects that have ticked every single box in the paper but still goes to minister and, and of course that can you know not go ahead for for political reasons or what have you so you know that's an area of concern that we really want to see addressed um, another area of course is tax uh, competitiveness you know we need to ensure that canada is an attractive place to invest and do business in we need to ensure that if you know businesses or investors are looking at canada versus the us or the eu that we have tax rates that are competitive that uh, and and that incentivize businesses to come here um and of course we need to ensure that the labor market is is adequately equipped i mean long before the pandemic we had this dichotomy where um you know canadians were looking for jobs and businesses were looking to hire but the skills that canadians had versus the you know the jobs the skills needed to do those jobs didn't quite match up and we're still seeing that play out quite significantly during the pandemic so you know that's an area where we need maybe we need a matchup program and some more data collection mm -hmm. about what are those missing skills and how can we equip canadians with them in order to fuse those those job creation, job growth in Canada. Right. And, and the other side of it, too, is as we come out of the pandemic is, 
how quickly we start to phase out some of the pandemic response. And you, you'd alluded to this already that, you know, there's probably going to be a need in the short term maybe to, to continue with some of these programs like the emergency mm-hmm. wage subsidy or the emergency rent subsidy. Mm-hmm. So what kind of a balance do, does government need to strike here in, in starting to, to phase some of these out, but recognizing some of the immediate challenges that, that still exist? It, it, for sure. And I mean, to that point, the the beauty of the wage subsidy and the rent subsidy programs today is that they are um, divvied out on a, on a scale. So as businesses start to do better and as the revenues come back, the amount of support that they get from these programs you know, declines correspondingly. Mm-hmm. So, so that's a good thing. But at the same time, up to now, the government has really um, prioritized helping all businesses or a broad range of businesses without being sector specific. Um, and as we move further and further into recovery, a lot of businesses are going to start to do better and they're going to move away from needing these support programs and into more, you know, targeted recovery measures. But there are those businesses that are, you know, face to face and I'm thinking about like tourism and travel, hospitality, restaurants, um, events and, and culture, the arts, all of those, you know, face to face sectors that you really can't you know, pivot online or to a curbside pickup or, or, or what have you, you know, we're, we will start to need some more targeted policies and whether it's tweaking existing programs to, you know, only be targeted to those sectors or introducing some incentivization programs for consumers to go and, and use their services. There's a number of, of options that exist, but we do need to see um, the pandemic support programs um, start to move away from broad based and into um, targeted sector specific for the hardest hit. All right. Much more is mentioned, chamber.ca, and guess we'll find it for sure April 19th, uh, what direction the government intends to go. Al, appreciate you uh, joining us here today. Thanks for your input on this. No problem. Thanks for having me. Much appreciated. There you go. Uh, that is uh, Ala Dragola with the uh, Chamber of Canadian Chamber of Commerce, Director of Parliamentary Affairs and Small Business Policy, Chamber.ca. So really focusing not just on the economic rebound, but a longer term, real meaningful economic recovery. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.